A physician named Atul Gawande developed a series of five questions that he would ask patients with a terminal illness. The five questions were designed to help the patient and the physician determine together whether or not they would continue aggressive medical treatment or move the patient to palliative or comfort care. One of the questions that was one of the five was, what does a really good day look like to you? I think it's an excellent question, and I think it's a good question for all of us, even those who are in tip-top physical health. What does a really good day look like? Annie Dillard says that how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. So Dr. Gwandi remembers the day that he went in to see a patient. She was in a hospital bed, and she looked at the doctor, and she said, you know, doc, all I really want to do is take my kids to Disneyland. And he thought to himself, if I had only known that a month ago, I could have made it possible. But I didn't ask her back then, and now it's too late. The scripture that Caroline read for us a moment ago invites us to take hold of the life that really is life. And the scripture acknowledges that it's not all that easy to take hold of the life that really is life because, as the scripture puts it, we have to fight the good fight of faith in order to hold on to that life, sometimes called eternal life, that life that really matters. We're so tempted to grab on to the stuff, the stuff that really isn't life. You know, our whole culture seems to struggle with the burden of too much stuff. How often do we say to one another, there's just so much stuff here, I need to get rid of some of this stuff. And in fact, there's a new Netflix series out called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, and she comes into homes and sits down at the kitchen table and helps folks determine their own unhealthy relationship with their stuff and what needs to go. And what I love about this show is that it doesn't just say, well, that rug has to go. We're going to get you a new pretty one from the store. It just says the rug has to go. No new rug. She helps them discard the stuff to help them find the true joy in life, the joy that comes without all that stuff. Today's scripture does not condemn riches or rich people, because after all, by the world's standards, that would include all of us. Rather, today's scripture warns about our relationship with stuff. Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, says the text. I remember when I was in college, my roommate and I went out to dinner one night with her parents who were in town visiting, and they told us over dinner that the airlines had just started up a fair war and that we should really take advantage of it and figure out somewhere to go on spring break. They said, we have friends all around the country, like in New Orleans and in New York, and you should get a ticket. It would be such a, an economical trip, this cheap fare and a free place to stay. And so that night, Laura and I bought $79 round trip tickets from Austin, Texas to New York City. And when we arrived at my roommate's parents' friend's home, we stepped out of the cab and a doorman greeted us, held the door open for us, put us on the elevator, and we stepped off the elevator and we were in a penthouse on Park Avenue in New York City and there were five exquisitely decorated bedrooms and two kitchens and this huge office that was lined wall to wall with awards that the owner had won in his career. 
We walked into the kitchen that next morning and met the owner. He looked so forlorn. His wife had just left him the week before. He was at the peak of his career. He had a, a second home in Switzerland, but the love of his life was gone. And you could just see the lines of pain in his face. The life that really is life proved elusive to him. It was not his to enjoy. Now for many of us, having too much money is not really the problem. We struggle to get our kids through college. We face the financial pressures of caring for aging relatives. We worry that we might not have enough to stash away for retirement. Some of us are burdened with too much debt. Today's text is not meant to make any of us, regardless of our financial position, feel guilty about our resources. Rather, this scripture is a call to place our ultimate hope in the generosity of God. It's a call for all of us to discern what brings true enjoyment to us in this life and to empower us to focus on that life, the life that really is life. The church has sometimes sent the erroneous message that what God wants is for you to give to the church. But this passage counters that claim. This passage claims something bigger, that what God cares about is not just how much you give away to charity or to the church, but what all of us do with all of our money, and not just our money, but our time. God has given to us absolutely everything we have, our family, our friends, our money, our lives, our days, our community. The very breath within us is a gift from God. God lavishly gives to us all of this life so that we can enjoy life. And God deeply cares about our whole lives, not just a little portion of our lives. And we are accountable to God for how we spend those lives. Are we spending our lives in ways that bring all of us deep and abiding joy and contentment? The scripture claims that our true joy, our true contentment, comes when we share our resources with God and with other people. The scripture says, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. And I suppose if we were to break it down, there is no one formula that works for every single one of us. Each of us is called to, deter, to discern what it is that is the life that really is life for us. We used to jokingly say that on our deathbeds, none of us will ever say, well, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. But today, I think the biggest temptation that many of us face, rather on a daily basis, is screen time. We sit down at the dinner table. I bet this happened to some of you, many of you, just this past week. You finally sit down to a nice meal with a person you deeply care about, and he or she brings their telephone to the table. Many of us will be on our deathbeds, and we will not probably look back and say, well, I wish I'd spent more time scrolling through social media and checking my email. The scripture says, shun all this and pursue, pursue good stuff like godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. 
we are called to practice a life that leads in a particular direction. I remember a good day that started out as a bad day. I was 22 years old. My bright orange car was packed and loaded. I was driving from Fort Worth, Texas to New Haven, Connecticut to begin graduate school. It was still dark when I walked through the kitchen of my childhood home. My mom was standing there in her nightgown and robe. I knew mom was mad. She thought this whole idea of becoming a minister was ludicrous. She advised me sternly and strongly against it. She begged me not to go, but I was stubborn. I had no idea if I could get through graduate school on my own financially. I was very much afraid and very determined. So this made for an extremely awkward moment on that morning in the kitchen. I didn't know quite what to say or do until my mom reached out a little brown folded paper lunch bag. She said, there are two pimento cheese sandwiches in here for your trip. Pimento cheese is my mom's specialty. She roasts the peppers herself, dices them, adds a little cream cheese, grates the sharp cheddar herself, adds just the right amount of mayo, salt, and pepper, and they are divine. And when she handed me those sandwiches, I knew that my mom loved me, even though we vehemently disagreed. I knew that the love between us was the life that really is life, and it would be enough to carry me through. Generosity, good works, ready to share, Right there in the kitchen, I tasted God's love. Thanks, Mom, I said, and I was off. Pursue the good stuff, says Timothy. Don't place your hopes in riches. Place your hope on God. Find your contentment in being generous with others and in sharing. This past week, I listened to Krista Tippett's interview with Phyllis Borstein. She teaches a meditation class out in California and she tells about the time that she was teaching in every Wednesday class and one of her students missed class for a number of weeks because she was having her first child. When she came back to class she brought the baby with her to introduce the baby to the other students in meditation class and the student said to the teacher, you know, when I became pregnant everybody said to me, congratulations, oh that's so wonderful, I'm so happy for you, congrats. And then when I had the baby, everybody came up to me and looked at the baby and said, congratulations, great, 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 wonderful. But what no one told me was that after my daughter was born, I would mortgage my heart for the entire rest of my life because my happiness now depends on this baby being well and healthy and nothing bad ever happening to it. Nobody tells you that, she said. What the book of 1 Timothy tells us is that on the day that we were born, God mortgaged God's heart for us. God loves us with an endless generosity. And when we love God back, or when we love another human being, we taste the life that really is life. Bill Bryson wrote a book called One Summer, America, 
1927. The United States at this moment had fallen woefully behind Europe in the field of aviation. France had nine different passenger airlines. British airlines were flying over a million passengers, a million miles a year, and Germany was flying 151,000 passengers in 1927 alone. And do you know, in the midst of Europe taking off with all this extravagant air travel, do you know how many scheduled passenger planes there were in our country? Zero. Not one. And so a man, a businessman in New York named Raymond Ortigue established a prize, $25,000, that he would give to the person who could safely fly from New York to Paris. René Franck tried it first. The plane that Franck outfitted for this transatlantic journey was extremely posh. Bryson says that it had leather fittings a sofa and chairs, cooking facilities, and even a bed. Franck passed, packed along for the journey extra fuel, two radios, spare clothes, gifts for friends that he knew in Paris, wine, champagne, and even duck that he could eat upon arrival in Paris. You know they already have duck in Paris. He didn't need to do that. Once loaded, the plane weighed 28,000 pounds, and when it took off down the runway, it was so heavy that it could not achieve lift, and it just careened over the cliff, killing two of the crew and two escaping. The next to try was Richard Byrd. Byrd had a team of 40 folks working with him to accomplish this grand mission. He had a kitchen staff, a private mess hall, mechanics, and telegraph operators. He spent $500,000 in 1927 getting ready. But on the plane's test flight, they discovered that there was too much weight in the front of the plane, and when it came in for landing, it just crashed on its nose, destroying the plane so that it was out of the competition. Charles Levine was next. He was quite the character, a media magnate, and he decided that the pilot for this mission would be selected on the day of the flight by flipping a coin on the runway. A squab squabble broke out amongst the different people involved, especially the competing pilots. It went to court, which delayed the takeoff. Meanwhile, Mr. Levine insisted that a radio would be placed on the plane so that when the plane passed over an ocean liner across the Atlantic, that they could radio down a report and he could generate more funds from the broadcast that would result. The pilot said no, no radio on the plane. It's too heavy, it could interfere with the compass, and it will be a fire hazard. So while these gentlemen are disputing how to get that plane off the ground, another person comes along. He's 25 years old, six foot two, and weighs 128 pounds. His name is Charles Lindbergh. His plane was made of Pima cotton that was painted with six coats of varnish. Those who built the plane for Lindbergh didn't really know what the distance was between New York and Paris. 
And so they went to the library and they found a globe and they measured with a string to try to calculate the distance. Lindbergh's plane had no fuel gauge, no brakes, and no radio. He packed as light as he possibly could. He even took the map and cut off the white edges of the map so that he would have absolutely no extraneous weight. He packed just five sandwiches and he didn't eat any until he could see land of France. Lindbergh didn't even pack a toothbrush or a change of clothes. He would have to borrow clothes if he were to arrive safely. His total expense for the journey, $13,500. When Lindbergh arrived in Paris after 33 hours of flight, he buzzed around the Eiffel Tower and then landed safely on an airfield six miles outside of Paris. He was startled when he came in for landing to see lights all around the airstrip. He didn't think that there were lights that were going to be there, and when he came in close, he realized that tens of thousands of Parisians had rushed to the airport to watch the Spirit of St. Louis land. It was such a miracle, and pandemonium broke out as his plane was swarmed by thousands. Why had he finally achieved this great prize? Not only was he probably the world's greatest pilot at that moment, he had traveled light. He was not weighed down by stuff. What he knew above all else is that he wanted to get to Paris. Where is it that you want to get?